0: I've got my cam. I'm sporting a, a nice new set of headphones and a nice new podcast mic as well. So. Just for the listeners, Derek has invested in all this fancy gear. That's how seriously he's taken the historians. I'm trying to catch up and keep up, uh, so hopefully I'll, I'll be able to invest in a bit of technology in the near future. But anyway, onwards and for this evening, we are going to be discussing yeah, Tristan, Tristan Hughes and, and his wonderful new tome called Perdiccas Years* which deals with a very tiny period of history for, for the ancient times. We're talking about 323 to 320 BC. So it's a, just the a period right after the demise of Alexander the Great. I can't wait for this one. This is going to be really, really exciting. And I believe we have Tristan with us now. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, good timing. Hello, Tristan.
1: Hello, team. How are we doing? There he
0: is. is. There he is, you're the man welcome. himself. Welcome yeah. to the Hip Tristan.
1: Oh wow. are oh, we going straight into it. Hello, hello. We're going team. straight hello. into it. We yeah, did. it's okay.
0: We no. can we can we can do it. We, we can talk a little bit. We can edit it all out anyway. No, thanks so much for, for coming along. Because you're you're obviously the experienced podcaster. You've been doing this for how many years now?
1: Oh goodness. I don't know, only about two years or so, two or three years. So okay. I'm I'm afraid my experience is to an extent, we we'll, we'll find out as this episode goes along, won't we, my friend? <laughs> it's,
0: right. it's it's a podcasters face-off, yeah, ben, Tristan.
1: <laughs> my whole career is on the line with this chat, so you gotta, <laughs> yeah, you guys better not. We'll,
0: we'll try and go kind with you. We just right, did an introduction it. Just before you came on air, Tristan, so we just introduced you to our listeners. Myself and Derek are big, big fans. Yeah, we're a little bit starstruck.
1: Well, I am I am honored. I am honored. And it's lovely to meet two fans and I'm glad that you've got the book as well. So I hope you've enjoyed it and looking forward to talking all about it.
0: Fantastic. Well, let's jump right in. This is like we're talking about a major figure in history here. Alexander the Great. He was not going to be called anything else, was he? You know, he's not going to be called Alexander the Mediocre. Alexander, he did okay. He's Alexander the Great. Why is he called Alexander the Great?
1: Well, (laughs) he's called the greatest sum. He's called the not so great to others, depending on how you view what he did. Because let's be honest, he is a megalomaniac. He (sighs) conquers lots and lots of land, but he kills hundreds and thousands of people as well. So there are lots of different sides to the figure of Alexander. But he is one of the most extraordinary figures that has ever lived. He always seems to rank in the top 10, top 20 most well-known figures in the whole of history. And in his lifetime, he did conquer the superpower of the time, the Persian Achaemenid Empire, marched his army to the edges of the known world and further, all by the age of 32, And following his death, the period which I'm most interested in, the the legacy that he leaves, the immediate legacy, this forming of the Hellenistic world and the emergence of these incredible kingdoms that emerge in the ancient Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean. And actually, earlier today, by complete coincidence, I was doing an interview at the British Library's new exhibition all about the making of the mythical figure of Alexander the Great. And that's another great part of his legacy and how over the centuries following him, you get the development of these mythical stories, the Alexander Romance, and where you have these fantastical stories of Alexander becoming medieval Arthurian bestsellers, you know, stories which include him going to the bottom of the ocean in a submarine, flying in the sky by, with a, in a flying carpet, according to one of the Arabian Muslim traditions. It's an extraordinary figure. What he does, the historical Alexander, what he does in his life but also the mythical, legendary Alexander that evolves following his death.
0: Well, given Emmanuel Macron was, what, 40 when he took over the premiership of France, 32 is remarkable. I mean, it's, it, it, this swept all the way, obviously, from his homeland, Macedonia, all, all across to Afghanistan and uh, took in the great city of Bactria, which, which again, is another part of, of the world. I mean, that was one of the, the greatest ancient cities uh, of all time, correct?
1: Yes, well, Bactria, yes. Uh, Modern-day, well... We think it went maybe around modern-day Balkh in that area of Afghanistan. Of course, at the time of the Persian Empire, this was a great important centre of the Persian Empire in its eastern reaches. It's no coincidence that the the prince, the person who would succeed the Persian king of kings, was charged usually... controlling Bactria because it was such an important province in the eastern end of the Persian Empire. Of course, Alexander, he spends quite a few years in that part of the empire that he's forging because he actually experiences the most difficult campaigning of his whole career in that area, or more correctly, in the region just north of ancient Bactria, ancient Sogdia, modern-day Uzbekistan. And of course, following Alexander the Great's death, that area, Bactria and Balkh at its centre, becomes the heart of an extraordinary enigmatic I hesitate to say Hellenistic kingdom because there are various, there are local elements, there are Asian elements, but there are also Hellenic elements you can see too, the creation of this Greco-Bactrian kingdom, which is another extraordinary tale
0: in its own right. Incredible. Can I just bring us back a little bit here, Tristan, just get back to basics, if that's okay. We're talking about a period of time, 300 years BC, before, before Christ, okay? Now, we know, I think it's fairly widely accepted that... A figure, a person, for want of a better word, called Jesus Christ existed, right? I mean, we're all okay with that now. We're all, that's all established. But now we're dialing back even 300 years before that. Are we absolutely 100% happy and assured that there was a figure, a person called Alexander? That he lived, he breathed, and he's not this amalgamation of these myths, mythological figures through history all boiled into one that he could go in submarines, fly in the air not unlike jesus so my point being are we absolutely 100 percent about this is one man who set out and conquered the world before before he died at the age of 32 yes
1: i don't oh, think what
0: great th- uh, answer. <laughs>
1: yeah. i don't think it's like a figure such as homer you know where there's a bit more yeah. debate around you know were there many different versions or was there one figure called homer um i could I completely appreciate your point on that because as you say it, the mythologizing of alexander particularly during his life but following his death it it's it adds so much more to his story so it's a legitimate question to ask but yes the numismatic evidence the archaeological evidence does affirm that well, there was a particular figure called alexander the great well not the great but alexander the third of macedon
0: right and so okay what did he look like what did he do what now did that are that you? is a
1: very interesting question to ask about there. No, because... this
0: is why you're on the historians, there, Tristan. <laughs> we have all the. We have all the best questions.
1: Well, it's, it's always interesting with Alexander the Great because obviously following his death, he's portrayed in so many different ways for over uh, so many different traditions. But, you know, the common depiction you, you get of Alexander the Great, you get the depiction of him, the bust in the British Museum today, and actually saw one at the British Library earlier today, is the one with the flowing locks, kind of the Colin Farrell-esque-like depiction that you get in the epic movie 2004 Alexander. But that in itself is an, a, a showing of alexander the great very much as this kind of dionysus divine kind of figure and then when you get alexander the great on the coinage following his death when he's got the two horns to signify his divine uh significant his his newfound divinity following his death coins of lysimachus and ptolemy and other successors, once again you get that kind of flowing hair that you see on his coinage and this idea of this this I hesitate to say youthful figure, but I mean, those are the two main sources we really have for Alexander's appearance. We do get a, if I remember correctly, a description in Plutarch, but I'm just remembering from getting it from the back of my mind there. I mean, it is such an interesting question because for me, I focus on... Uh, you know the kind of the end of his reign. I can give you an overview on Alexander the Great and his achievements and his military successes and where he goes and what happens in these locations. But I mean, that is another. There are so many different aspects of Alexander's story. Like, is his, I'm having to start researching a bit his sex life for a podcast I've got coming up, which I only know very little about at the moment. But of course, there's his relationships. There's the amount of his Persianization. There's his administration of the empire. There's his subordinates. It's all fascinating parts of his story. And as you've hinted at, his appearance is another interesting part, too.
0: That's extraordinary. You know, you you just could answer my next question. For some reason, I was about to ask you about his sex life. I don't know why that popped into my head as you were speaking there. You know, we're talking about the man, the figure, the glowing hair. I mean, you know, if he was around today, he'd he'd be a rock star. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, he was a king. And I must admit, as I've said earlier, you know, this isn't my main area of of research, and I have to learn more about it. But it is a fascinating one where you have all of these stories surrounding Alexander the Great. You have his uh, official wife, the Sogdian princess Roxana, who in some of the traditions it says that he marries for love when he um, lays eyes on her in northeastern reaches, particularly in the later mythological romance stories of Alexander the Great. But we know that he had many other um, partners too. He has an illegitimate child called Heracles of all names, by a woman called Barsine, who had previously been the wife of one of his initial great enemies, a man called Memnon of Rhodes. And of course, There are other figures as well. There's this bisexual nature of Alexander the Great, the eunuch Bagoas, who was a former favourite of the Persian king Darius III, before Alexander takes control of the King Persian Empire. There's very much this idea that Alexander had a very, very close relationship with Bagoas. This is an idea very much furthered by Mary Reynolds in the late 20th century. But of course, the other key figure is Hephaestion who we see Hephaestion is one of his closest companions, may well have been his lover too. And there are many stories surrounding Alexander the Great and Hephaestion, them going to Troy, Alexander portraying himself as Achilles, Hephaestion as Patroclus. Another story where one of, I think it's Darius's family, one of the members, they bow down believing that they are bowing down to Alexander the Great following his victory at the Bachelor of Issus. But in fact, they're bowing down to Hephaestion. And then Alexander makes the quippy little remark, well, Hephaestion is just as much me as I am. So about his sex life, I can't go into too much detail because I don't know too much detail. And that's something that I'm very much looking forward to learning more about um, in the weeks ahead. But I can give you that overview. He was well, evidently a sex mad guy. <laughs> <laughs> women men alike almost certainly
0: brilliant um, well brilliant. We, look, we look forward to hearing about that more in the next one on a, on a more sobering note the, the demise of the great one and this is really this takes us right up to to where you start your story really in the verticus years and, and and what happens so i suppose to give it just a, a brief so i suppose the, there's a number of people around him when he dies and this is where everything starts to go pear-shaped he, he had a plan he thought it was all good. But not so. So
1: fill us in. Right. So it's 323 3 BC. It's the start of June 323 3 BC. Alexander the Great. He's campaigned to the edge of the known world. He's gone down the Indus River Valley in um, modern-day Pakistan, the Indian subcontinent, and he's returned to Babylon. His army is now roughly a hundred thousand soldiers. He's got also there his wife Roxana, who I mentioned earlier. She's roughly eight months pregnant at the time. He's also got his elder half brother Philip Aridaeus, which is interesting, and it will be important for when we come back later. But Philip Aridaeus, Alexander has a history of getting rid of close family members who he saw as potential threats to his rule. But Philip Aridaeus, well, his name at the moment is Aridaeus. I'll explain the Philip link in a bit later. But Aridaeus does not seem to have been seen as a threat by Alexander. And we don't know what condition he had, but he had some sort of mental illness, which meant that Alexander never saw him as a threat to his own rule, because Aridaeus could not rule on his own right and in fact alexander seems to have kind of liked the guy but basically alexander he's in babylon at the start of june 323 bc as you've hinted at he's got plans for future conquest there's a he sent out a reconnaissance mission already to scout the arabian coastline that very rich area of the near eastern world of the arabian uh, peninsula the arabian that area of the ancient world but I think he's also got his eyes on back west, particularly with the troublesome city-state of Athens, which is becoming more and more hostile to Alexander the Great, particularly through the likes of demagogues such as hyperaides Demosthenes less so, but he will become more important as the time progresses. So Alexander's got these plans for future military campaigns in the future. And one night he decides to attend the drinking party of one of his companions, one of his subordinates, a figure called Medius, Of Larissa. Now, drinking parties are nothing unusual for the Macedonian elite of the time. It was classic to go, you know, an after dinner heavy boozing. That was classic part of Alexander the Great and his elite's inner circle. So he attends this after dinner booze up, has a good time. We hear from the sources, which is a, a detailed account in a couple of our sources, which I believe is Arian and Plutarch, that he has a good time, then he decides to have a bath and then he goes to sleep. The next day he starts to develop a fever. And at first, this fever isn't that bad, and he's able to conduct the daily sacrifices. He's able to get out of bed, get out of the royal palace and plan future military endeavours with his closest subordinates, his somatophilakes, his bodyguards. But over time, over the next few days, his condition deteriorates, and ultimately, he is consigned to his bed in the royal palace. And so this is when things start getting a bit ugly. People start thinking, hang on, this is looking pretty bad. So much so that over the next few days... Alexander loses the ability to speak and his soldiers particularly his Macedonian soldiers so his countrymen those veteran soldiers who had basically sacrificed everything their homes back in Macedon to serve with Alexander over the past 10 years or so they get worried they don't know if the king is still alive or not so they burst into the room where Alexander is lying and they demand to see Alexander and then you get this very emotive poignant scene as we're told in our sources, how they file past Alexander's bed one by one, and they give their last respects. They pay their last respects to the dying king. Alexander, mute at this point, he gives some mute acknowledgement of their presence as they pass solemnly by. And then, over the next few days, the inevitable happens. Alexander's condition deteriorates, and ultimately, on either the tenth or the eleventh of June, I'm more swayed by the. Uh, astronomical diaries. That it's the eleventh of June on the afternoon. Alexander the Great, surrounded by his seven leading subordinates, his bodyguards, his centurial arches, he breathes his last. Alexander the Great is dead, at the age of just thirty-two. Wow,
0: uh, what a story! There right there, as you were, as you were telling, there I could see it all unfolding. It's such a great story and a great way of telling it. It was almost unfolding right in front of us. Isn't that right, there? It's it's, it's a, we were just discussing this before you yeah. came on. Like, it, what a, I mean, okay. Take modern history, like that. Loads and loads of information. You know, a lot of transcripts and things that people have said. But how difficult must it be to do what you do and create this story from from scanned information for the most part, right? You've got to piece a lot of things together. To come up with a narrative that one is is as historically factual as as it can be, as well that it's been able to. It is well what you achieve in the book. You can read it as a story, and we're listening to it enthralled with you as a storyteller.
1: Well, I think this is actually one of the things that I love the most about what I do, and this is one of the key things to what my my passion and why I think that my reason is you know, to to share these incredible ancient stories stories from ancient history with with people like yourselves because. I absolutely love telling it. It was an absolute joy to research this book. This was a passion project of mine. What happens next? But it's also just getting out there, talking to people, sharing these stories and showing that how, okay, Alexander the Great is an extraordinary figure, but things just don't stop after his death. It's not just alexander dies and then you get the rise of rome and they have the next dominant power in the mediterranean there's so much more that happens and so one of the great joys is to tell the stories but also on the other half of the podcast to go and interview people who've dedicated so much years so many years of their research of their time to other incredible areas and likewise giving them the spotlights to really go ham to go mental and talk about those areas which they in their respect find incredibly interesting so it's wonderful to hear that from you guys
0: yeah, absolutely. 100%. And this is, my, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this, Tristan, is because, sadly, I, I think history as a subject in schools is starting to be overlooked a little bit. And did I read there somewhere they're even considering dropping it from s- some school curriculums in the UK? I'm not so sure if I have that correct. But that sort of thing, I don't think it's just a niche subject that a few, for want of a better word, nerds are into. Like, we believe firmly that Wilder there are just fantastic stories that we just heard from your good self, just right there, it has a relevance right up to today. History, right? I mean, this is important stuff. And just getting back to Alexander, there—do you, do you see some sort of relevance to what happened back 300 years before Christ to what's happening today? I mean, the, the old cliche is that history repeats itself, right? Are we, yeah. you know, you know, can we can we argue tonight on this podcast for for the importance? of history just outside of just good storytelling
1: which we all love yeah i also just want to say something about that with, with history i mean if someone labels you a nerd for giving for studying history i don't give a damn at all because history is not niche in any sort of thing history is everything that has happened ancient history is most of history and prehistory so i always laugh with my um contemporaries with my uh, fellow podcast hosts who focus on either the medieval period or the tudors and just like well you've got 200 300 years of history how much have i got i've got more than a million yeah exactly. <laughs> um so like no i think history is, is super important it's not a niche because actually everyone is fascinated by history when they start learning about it and when you have the proper storytellers there to tell these stories i think what really gets many people into history is the i it's the quality of your history teachers at school when you're learning it's the ability that you're not just there learning dates from i don't know the reign of elizabeth the first you're engaging in it. You're learning these incredible stories from our distant past and understanding why they're so important to look at these stories or just why they're so cool. Why do you think that some of the greatest um, HBO or you know, movies and TV series that have ever been released are based loosely or around historical events? Game of Thrones, even Lord of the Rings has a kind of link back to that kind of medieval idea of sword and shield and trebuchets and all of that. It's no coincidence for all of that. History is so important, as he also hinted there, so that you don't repeat the same mistakes in the future. But regardless, Mm. also the, the problem with that is that no matter what happens today, someone will draw a parallel with something that's happened in the past. And then there will be a refute, which someone says, well, you can't draw that parallel. And there will be some which agree. And it just goes on and on and on. But that's one of the fascinations of it at the same time, I think.
0: Yeah, that's it. It's amazing stuff. And and when we're talking about these guys, I kind of want to get into now what happens when the the whole thing starts to fall apart and the empire unravels on on his deathbed. And you know, we get into it, it, it's pretty much it's really interesting what happens on the outside of the the death chamber, right? Other things start happening. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that because that was really interesting.
1: Uh, so what w- what's happening elsewhere in the Empire when he died? No,
0: outside of the death chamber. So when all this was going on, and then there's some people that weren't so in a very high position or whatnot who started shouting from the crowd, and then the crowd got behind them, and all of a sudden, you know, history starts to shift.
1: Absolutely, I know exactly what you're on there. So basically, it's a great, amazing story, and we actually have it preserved in quite a lot of detail, thanks to one particular source, uh, Quintus Curtius Rufus, who explains it all. That right at the end of his History of Alexander the Great. And he explains how initially the top tier generals of Alexander the Great were going to decide what happened next. in the kind of conclave in the room where Alexander the Great had died, sealed away from the rest of the army and the lower tier generals. But the Macedonian soldiers and those lower tier generals, they're impatient. They don't want the decision of what's going to happen next to to be made without them being there. Because, as mentioned, they've sacrificed everything. They are very mercenary in their nature by now. Their fates are very much entwined with what happens next. And so their impatience, so they see these senior generals filing into the palace itself, gets the better of them. And they, in the courtyard of the royal palace, they storm into the room where Alexander the Great had died and demand that these generals, these bodyguards and the other senior figures, that they continue discussions in front of the soldiers. And so this very private conclave, all of a sudden turns into a very public very open military assembly where these former subordinates of Alexander the Great then put forwards in turn their own proposals for what should happen next to Alexander the Great's empire and ultimately they can't really reach a decision because some ideas are put forwards Perdicus, a man who obviously is at the center of the book he puts forward that they wait the birth of Roxana's child, and if it's a son, they proclaim him the new king and install a regency in the meantime. Soldiers don't like that. That means a lot of uncertainty. They're not sure if the child will be a son. They're not even sure that the child will survive infancy. So rather than that, they, they don't have much popularity of the idea. Other ideas are put forward, such as in stating a council of the best generals to rule instead. Then there's an idea to put forward Perdiccas as the man to be Alexander the Great's successor, which does have quite a bit of support but Perlicus turns it down because it's too much of a poison chalice. There are too many potentially very powerful figures in the empire who would want to see him dead. And so Perlicus knows if he accepts the kingship, he won't be king for very long. It's kind of like Liz Truss as prime minister, really very short. <laughs> um, but after all of that, all of that debates, the soldiers therefore decide to take matters into their own hands, a lower ranking general, lower ranking captain, sees an opportunity. He put forwards, he, for, he takes advantage of the chaos he raids the treasury with some soldiers. They get the money which they wanted. And then another thing, I love this part of the story, notice an unknown soldier, according to the story, puts forward the suggestion that will ultimately be accepted partly at the end of this great immediate crisis, which is that they proclaim Alexander the Great's elder half-brother, Aridaeus, as king. And that is when he's proclaimed Philip. That's when he becomes Philip Aridaeus, or King Philip the III. Oh,
0: that's really
1: fantastic. I and
0: mean, there was another thing I picked up on as well, Tristan. Is there a debate about what actually happened to his body?
1: There is a big debate as to what happens to his body. I mean, there's even more to the Babylon story, which I'm sure I'll come back to later. But yeah. the, the the body is a really interesting part. And actually, I can come back to the Babylon story straight away because the generals aren't happy with Philip the III being the new king. It's a bit unclear why, but they're not. And so the soldiers who proclaim Aridaeus as the new king, they see the generals refuting their proposal and trying to put forward their own idea for what should happen. And they now see that as treason because they proclaim the new king and these former subordinates of Alexander the Great are basically refusing to acknowledge that. And so the red mist descends, irked, egged on by this captain, a man called Meliega. And so they storm into the room where Alexander the Great had died. And these generals are now seeking sanctuary with about 600 of their followers. And supposedly, within roughly 48 hours of Alexander the Great's death, there is this great clash, this big fight in the room where Alexander the Great died. And there is blood spilt on the walls, on the floors of the room where Alexander the the Great's body still lies and stays, according to Quintus Curtius Rufus. So they get Alexander's body straight away. A couple of days after his death, there's already a fight in the room where he died. Ultimately, when the... um, Crisis is put down about a week later. The generals emerge, the victors, Meleager is killed, his lackeys are killed, and the generals retake control of the army. Perdiccas becomes the new chief figure. They go back to Alexander the Great's body, and you get this very much a fantastical story where they return to Alexander the Great's body more than a week after he had died. And supposedly, Alexander the Great's body, which had been there in the sweltering summer, Mesopotamian heat for more than a week, is still in pristine condition it hadn't rotted or anything like that hence suggesting its divine nature now one line of thought and it's a very credible well not credible but it's an admirable line of scholarly thought is that if this is at all true then perhaps alexander the great hadn't died on the 11th of june 323 bc and had in fact entered a catatonic state and that would potentially have explained why his body was in such a state so much later I don't know the science behind that. I don't know if that would be true or not, but it's an interesting thing to put there, forward there.
0: That's a uh, great story, though. That's a great be. idea just to hold for a second, right? You know, you were talking about he had a good bit of, I was going to say beer. It probably wasn't beer, was it? It was probably what they drank the night before in their big drinking session. Wine. I love a Guinness, so I'm assuming, <laughs> you know, it was a bit before Guinness's time. So he has this big session the like, night before with his mates. Probably went at it a little bit too hard. A bit of you know bad lamb or something like that. Woke up feeling really crap, for want of a better word, the next day. And as we've all felt at times, just couldn't manage to get up the next day. Slips into a, effectively a coma from just having too much of a good time. And that's what actually happens. You know, he doesn't die. He just lies there, and then everything else falls apart around him. Or is that a bit of a stretch?
1: Well, I mean, you could potentially propose that. It's very, very interesting. I mean, there's so many theories of how Alexander, the Great, how Alexander the Great dies, stretching from typhoid and pneumonia to grief. to There's a later poison theory, which is absolute fiction, but I would include it there as well. Um, and his war wounds, et cetera. But it is interesting because even if Alexander the Great wasn't dead that week and a half after and he was in a coma, he wasn't alive for much longer because his body is embalmed. In the ancient Egyptian tradition, so his his organs are taken out. So even if he was still alive, there's no coming back from that. Exactly, there's no coming back from that. Indeed, and Alexander the Great's body lies in state somewhere in Babylon for roughly the next two years. As his subordinates, chiefly Perdiccas, oversees the construction of this incredible funeral carriage, unlike anything the world had ever seen before.
0: And what what is that carriage? What does it look like?
1: well it's it's we are fortunate to have a very detailed description of it surviving in Diodorus Siculus probably comes from an eyewitness source perhaps someone like Hieronymus of Cardia who may well have been present in Babylon at that time but it's described very much as a Greek temple on wheels so it's got those key elements so it's got these columns you have the coffin of Alexander the Great in the center you have his arm um, as an armor on top you have sweet smelling aromatics around this central chamber and surrounding it you have this gold and shimmering net once again so you can try and peer in and see Alexander the Great's body Alexander the Great's coffin behind this shimmering net to kind of once again evoke his new divine status you have these guardian statues protecting the entrance to this central chamber very much like I like to think of it like the guardian statues found in the tomb of Tutankhamun you have this um pediment as well you have this long running frieze all of these kind of traits that you see on ancient greek temples such as the parthenon and so on and so forth so you see a very much a hellenic element in there too but you also see a very uh, asian persian element in it which is the wheels this is a temple on wheels and wheeled funeral carriages is something more associated with ancient persia with ancient asia and not with the greek world so you get this kind of mixing this hybrid combining of the very these two parts of alexander the Great's empire potentially an egyptian link there too with what i mentioned about the guardian statues but gold was everywhere decoration was everywhere on the big frieze, you have the various elements of alexander the great's army you have his infantry you have his cavalry you have elephants you have boats you have all of these parts epitomizing evoking showing once again Him as a military man, as a military conqueror who now rests amongst the gods. You have a great palm tree, golden palm tree emerging from the top of the funeral carriage, too, glinting in the sun. So, very much as this funeral carriage made its way west, people would see it, you know, in the distance as all the gold glinted off this. It would have been incredible to see. And that's combined with the 64 mules we are told that were used to pull the funeral carriage. All of them also clad in gold and with bells. So you wouldn't just see the funeral carriage approaching. You'd also hear it coming too. It's very difficult just to imagine it today. If there ever was an HBO series of the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death, which there will be one day, rest assured, I will promise you that that will happen on my own back. That will happen one day. You can just imagine that scene, can't you? Just the, the sound and the visuals of that, that incredible temple on wheels, this housing the dead body of Alexander the Great and making its way slowly westwards. I want to shout
0: hurrah! <laughs> I want to shout hurrah out loud. It's just <laughs> fantastic. So great storytelling as well, Tristan, you can almost see it. I can yeah. see you being the producer on said. HBO show so there you go listeners anybody listening out in HBO land Absolutely. or indeed Netflix well they'll have a hard job about? getting me
1: away from history hits but uh, if, yeah. they me, <laughs> if they offer me the millions then we'll see You're
0: very fairly committed now I mean given, given the size of the Empire given obviously the Empire wasn't uh, I suppose Together all that long because obviously the further you went out, years would go by, it wasn't that fast. How long did it take, presumably not that long as along trade routes, for news of Alexander's death to reach the further parts of the empire? So we're out towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, and what was the reaction then?
1: We can never know for sure exactly how long it took, how many days, for instance, but what alexander the great empire had was a persian legacy and the persians were brilliant for their roads for their communications network i love one particular fact of the achaemenid persians was their way stations was their use of messengers in the fact that they had all these way stations placed amongst their roads where messengers, they would get on one horse at one place, they would ride to one way station, they would get off their now exhausted horse, get on a new horse, and then continue going towards their destination as fast as possible. It's an incredible legacy of the Akinli Persian Empire, and I think as amazing as we think Alexander the Great is, he didn't civilize the Persians or anything like that. The Persians were incredibly sophisticated already. So what's the figures have at the time of Alexander the Great's death is that they have this incredible method of communication so that the news of Alexander the Great's death is shared far and wide very very quickly so I don't think it would have taken very long probably a matter of weeks for Alexander, news of his death, to reach places such as Afghanistan, the frontier forts of ancient Bactria and Sogdia, and I don't think it also takes very long for Alexander the Great's death, news of his death, to reach places like Athens in the west. If I remember correctly, it is a certain figure called Asclepiodorus, or Asclepiades, it's one of the two, very interesting but very similar names, and one of them I think is involved in a diplomatic mission to a a nearby city state and the other brings the first news of Alexander the Great's death to Athens whoever it is he brings the first news and I'm pretty sure that is around July August time at the latest so it's not long for news to reach Athens and it's certainly not long for news to reach places such as Afghanistan and the reaction in many places is instantaneous uprising and revolt because I'll take the two cases that I've mentioned already because they are the two key cases. In Afghanistan, ancient Bactria, Sogdia, Alexander the Great had placed, well, according to Arian, 13,000 Hellenic mercenaries, people he didn't trust to take into the Indian subcontinent because they had previously, most of them had most likely already served against him, formerly either for the Persians or for a Spartan king called Aegis III in a great anti-Macedonian revolt in the Greek mainland, Roughly 10, 8 years earlier, well, actually, five or so years earlier. And they then this punishment when they were captured been sent to Alexander in Afghanistan. And then Alexander just leaves them there in this hated far reaches of his empire. Um, when they hear Alexander the Great is dead, the main reason for them staying there, which was fear of Alexander the Great coming back and punishing them and killing them all, has gone. And so they decide. Apparently, twenty-three thousand of them now. So there's some interesting different differentiation in the numbers that we have from Alexander, and then what we have in the sources after Alexander the Great's death. Twenty-three thousand veteran soldiers, hoplites, spear and shield wielding heavy infantrymen, and some cavalry too. They decide to upsticks to leave their hated positions in this far northeastern reaches of. was alexander's empire and commenced their own journey back home to greece to mainland greece to athens to sparta to all of those areas so that's is the immediate reaction in the northeast the frontier is almost emptied of these soldiers who don't want to be there anymore and in the west the death of alexander the great is the trigger for a great anti-macedonian revolt led by the city-state of athens Uh, athens but also the aetolians further to the west and also a series of other city-states and the Salians too, who decide that this is the time to regain their lost liberty, that they see it, to remove the Macedonian yoke from city-states like Athens. And Athens, of course, had previous imperial prestige, you know, it was once the superpower in that area of the world. So they're very much harkening back to kind of reviving that naval dominance and that prime position on the Greek mainland. So in answer to your question, in places such as Athens and in the Far East, there is instant rebellion. There is instant revolt. There are troubles elsewhere. Um, in Thrace, Monday Bulgaria, you also have a king who's already declared himself independent, but he just kind of gathers more and more soldiers to his banners at the moment. He's potentially thinking about working alongside the Athenians against the Macedonians, and he may well have if he hadn't been stopped. But apart from that, those are the big three... External issues that erupt straight away as soon as they hear word of Alexander the Great's death.
0: So that's, that's like all great empires, yeah. right? All the way through history. Take the Roman Empire, even up to modern day Russia for want of a better example, but they are exercising that imperial kind of desire for conquest. You have one man right at the very top. You know, while he's there, he's untouchable. The, the empire is un, un, untouchable, but as soon as that one man, who is just like any other man, really, is made of skin and bone and <laughs> tissue, passes away, he's not a god. He's not. He's not an idol. Passes away, it all falls apart at the seams. And like I was interested there with Derek's questions, I would have when Derek was asking that question, I was trying to answer in my head. I, I thought it would, may have taken years, but you scaled it down into a matter of possibly even days, where it just all collapses like so so in a matter of what period of time we're talking about it was already ancient history as far as people were concerned Alexander's time it was already done and dusted and now it's just going to be a story for the, for for the ages which is where we're discussing tonight yes well i think exactly well it's,
1: i think a very good example of that is actually by the time that the first great macedonian civil war erupts the first war of the successors these external troubles the bactrian revolt in the east and the lamian war the great hellenic revolt in the west with athens They've both been crushed and put down by the end of 322 BC, so just over a year after Alexander the Great's death. I think you make an important point there about flesh and bone of these figures who had been so feared by so many across the empire. And a good figure to talk about this is the figure of Demosthenes, uh, this great Athenian orator who was beloved by Cicero. Um, Demosthenes, very um, anti-Macedonian in many cases. He fought against the Macedonians at Kyreneia the great battle back in 338 BC against Alexander the Great's father Philip II during Alexander the Great's reign he kind of he's more particularly near the end of Alexander's reign he is against the Athenians rising up in revolt against Alexander despite there being a lot of support among some sections for the Athenians to rise up in revolt particularly another figure called Hyperades but Demosthenes is wary and the one reason he is wary is because of Alexander the Great's reputation. Alexander is just 32 years old, you know, at that time. They don't know that he's about to die. He fears that Alexander the Great could potentially come back with his all-conquering army and raise the city of Athens to the ground, which he had done with a previous, well, with a nearby city-state, the city-state of Thebes, um, more than 10 years earlier. And it's the same with those soldiers who were based in Afghanistan, in Bactria, and Sogdia. They had heard rumours initially, um, back in 325, that Alexander the Great had died in India, and when they heard that, a group of them had decided to return home. They decided to revolt and return home, but many others had not because they then heard further news that Alexander was in fact not dead. So only a few thousand soldiers initially went in that three two five revolt most went in three two three when they had official confirmation of alexander 's death and what happened to those first three thousand is debated either they did get back that seems quite unlikely, or they were massacred en route so it is a fascinating story in the fact that, as you mentioned, Alexander the Great, the fear factor of this figure, keeps these fit people, um, prominent people, in place. But as soon as that thread is cut, you see these uprisings ha- happen. But even these uprisings in the grand scale of those three immediate years following Alexander the Great's death, they in themselves are ancient history when we get to the time of the first great civil war that erupts. Brilliant. And
0: tell us a little bit more about uh, Philip Aradaeus. So what happens now, uh, picking up from where we, we, we left off just a little while back?
1: Well, Philip Aradaeus is such an interesting figure because he's a pawn, really. He um, He's supposedly the man with all the power. He's the new king, but the real figure who's got all the power is the new regent. And that is the figure of Perdiccas. So Perdiccas acts supposedly on the authority of King Philip the third, But what King Philip the third is saying is really what Perdiccas is ordering. And so you see Philip the III being taken around the empire by Perdiccas and with the royal army, because for Perdiccas, a key symbol of his authority is his legitimacy as the new regent, is to have control of the king. So you see when Perdiccas leaves Babylon in 322 to fight against this great Iranian warlord in modern day Cappadocia uh, in Anatolia, eastern Anatolia, he takes the royal army, he takes Alexander the Great's wife, Roxana. He takes Alexander the Great's now infant child, who would become the other king. There'll be two kings. He's the other king, Alexander IV. And he will take King Philip Aradaeus III with him too. And it's otherwise, it's very sad, the story of Philip Aradaeus, because he is just lounged around as an item, as a symbol of authority and power for figures initially, such as Perdiccas, and following Perdiccas's demise by those who come after him, like Antipater, like Ptolemy, he is king in name only, and he ultimately will suffer a very terrible fate in 317, when he is ultimately murdered by a rival faction, because his power, although there
0: on paper, wasn't there in reality. Yeah, it's sad, and his name is almost lost to history compared to Alexander the Great.
1: You know what, I think his tale is absolutely fascinating, you're right, because his name is so often overlooked compared to Alexander the Great's story, but you the archaeology his name is still there there are coins minted for king Philip the third one part which i love of his story i was in egypt recently for some documentaries and we went to ancient thebes to luxor um to the temple complex the biggest ancient temple complex in the world karnak yes. right at the heart of karnak you know this temple which has m- several millennia of history within its walls Senesret I in roughly 2000 BC, down to Champollion, the man who deciphered hieroglyphs, etching his name on one of the columns at the far eastern end of the Karnak complex. Right at the centre of the Karnak complex, the holiest of holies, is a sacred bark granite shrine. And initially that was probably to a pharaoh such as Thutmose or Hatshepsut. It was initially to Hatshepsut. But the one that survives down to us today isn't to a native Egyptian ruler, it's to a Macedonian ruler, and it's to none other and Philip Aradaeus III. So you can see depictions of Philip Aradaeus III as a pharaoh all around this central holiest of holies at Karnak. You can see his cartouche, the royal Egyptian hieroglyph name there too, and this is Philip Aradaeus III. It's so fascinating because he only ventured to Egypt once as part of Perdiccas's disastrous attempt to defeat Ptolemy and take over Egypt for himself, but Ptolemy reconciles with Philip the third following perlicus's demise because ptolemy doesn't want to show himself as an independent monarch he wants to show him himself as still loyal and obedient to Philip the third and an idea put forwards by the brilliant historian ian Worthington is that one way he did this was by promising to erect this shrine in philiparadaeus's name in this holiest of holies at Karnak. but i just think it's fascinating philiparadaeus's story because at luxor this place which thousands hundreds of thousands of visitors go to every year right at the heart of karnak is a shrine to this figure and what's and the last thing to add to this story before i let you guys continue is that luxor temple down the road to the other end of luxor another incredible temple right at the heart of that in the holiest of holies there you have a shrine to alexander the great so in this one place in ancient egypt this prestigious beating heart of ancient egypt incredible ancient culture you have a shrine to Philip And you have a shrine to Alexander the Great in the holiest of holies of both these Egyptian sanctuaries. I think that's incredible.
0: It absolutely is. And I've been there and I did not know that. Now I'm going to have to go back. I was there many years (laughs) ago and it's such an amazing sight, but I did not know that. But bringing this up and neatly wrapping it up, Tristan, really, is what I want to ask you before we sign off is that where can the modern day historian go to, 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 to visit Alexander's legacy. Where can we see his tributes? We can go to we can go to Paris to see where Napoleon is lying, still lying in state. Where I've always wanted to go is to see where Salah al-Din is uh, in Damascus in Syria. Probably a bit difficult to go there now. But where can we go to see where where Alexander lived, breathed, fought, and had sex? <laughs> Not necessarily in.
1: Where did Alexander have sex? Where can I tell you guys to go? That's <laughs>
0: um,
1: very, very but good where, question.
0: Where can we? You know, where did he die? Where's this room that we were talking about? Where well, I
1: he, mean, mean where,
0: a real, you know, touch, touch, touch history and I, can't,
1: the I really, I'm, I can't answer that too well. On the I mean, <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, mean look, you, I mean, like, I mean places like alexandria i've never ever been i love to go to alexandria you see that just that legacy of alexander the great and you know this this main city he found so many cities but alexandria on the mediterranean by egypt it was called by egypt and not in egypt back in ancient times because it was so strange and bizarre to the ancient egyptians because it was this greek city by um egypt wasn't in egypt proper although there were other greek cities in egypt now Crates, but alexandria was seen as very different to the ancient egyptians um uh, in regards to places, you can walk kind of in the footsteps of Alexander, but of course it's quite, I mean, Iraq, there's, there's um, obviously he was there, and Iran, and Bactria, Afghanistan, India, all perhaps potentially slightly difficult places to get to today. Pakistan as well. I know a good friend of mine, she's now, thinking going to Pakistan to have a look at, to see that kind of Gandharan art and Greco-Bactrian art, which is kind of influenced in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. I'm going to give you a cheap answer, though, because right. I'm going to give you an answer... Where you don't actually have to leave, um, where you do have to leave Ireland, but you don't have That's to leave perfect. the British Isles. Ooh. You don't have to go to Britain. You can have to go to Britain. I'm afraid you're going to have to stomach that. You're going to have to come over and drink ciders. Um, That's fine. But you could go to the British Museum because this yeah. is an interesting part of the story, and you can go to a sarcophagus which is so often overlooked, which was brought to the British Museum as part of those objects alongside the Rosetta Stone that came to the to Britain. Uh, the capitulation of Alexandria following the defeat of Napoleon's uh, expedition in Egypt in 1801. And this is this big black granite sarcophagus, which when it arrived in Britain, found in Alexandria, the local legend was that it was the tomb of Alexander. This was where Alexander the body had lain in state. It was later revealed when hieroglyphs were deciphered roughly 20 years later by Champollion, Young, Banks and the rest of them, that it was in fact the sarcophagus of the last native Egyptian pharaoh, Nectonebo II. Not the tomb of Alexander, but there's more to the story because Nectonebo II had died in exile. He was chased out by the Persians in roughly 343 BC. And this sarcophagus was found in Alexandria. Alexandria wasn't a thing at the time of Nectanebo. It's founded after Alexander the Great, really. It becomes a city that is functional following Alexander the Great's death. So how does it end up in Alexandria of all places? How does it start getting this Nectonebo, this Alexander link? And this all goes back to one of these legendary stories that surrounds Alexander following his death, which is where he becomes the son of Nectanebo II in this Alexander romance story, this idea that he was actually the son of of Nectanebo, the last native Egyptian pharaoh. How this emerges is because the pharaoh, the successor, the general who ultimately takes over Egypt, a man called Ptolemy, wants to legitimize his control over this incredibly prestigious ancient area of the Mediterranean. And one way he does this was by spreading this story that Alexander was in fact the son of Nectanebo II, and so Ptolemy, as his successor, was therefore also the next legitimate ruler to rule the land of Egypt. And one way he may well have done that: Ptolemy is initially ruling from Memphis. So near Memphis, you have the prestigious burial ground of Saqqara, where we know Nectanebo II erected a temple, and it was very likely that that empty sarcophagus was just lying there at the time that ptolemy brings alexander the great's body to memphis we don't know this for certain but could alexander the great have placed alexander's body? could ptolemy have placed alexander the great's body in this empty sarcophagus to really further this story that alexander was in fact the son of Nectanebo and thus legitimize his own rule and would this thus help spread these stories of of alexander actually being linked to the last native egyptian pharaoh this is further Added to, there's more to the story by the fact that at Saqqara, at the place near where this temple of Nexanebo was, we believe was, is this semicircle of Greek statues, of Greek philosophers that we believe were constructed roughly around the time in the late fourth century and include figures such as Homer, such as Pindar, such as Aristotle, and Plato. All figures that we know Alexander the Great had a connection of. He was either fond of them or he was either taught by them or the person he was taught by was taught by them. Plato was taught by Aristotle. No, Aristotle was taught by Plato and Aristotle taught Alexander. Alexander supposedly had a copy of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad under his bed. Uh, and he, when he raises the city-state of Thebes to the ground, Greek Thebes in 335, the one house which he spares is the house of the poet Pindar. So are these statues actually marking where Alexander the Great's body was initially laid in the sarcophagus of the II, further affirmed by the discovery of Hellenic-looking lions and peacocks, peacocks completely alien to ancient egyptian culture but we know that alexander the great was fond of peacocks it's all starting to add up so was when alexander the great's body which we know was later moved to alexandria was it moved from this place in sakara in the sarcophagus of Nectanebo ii and then later placed in a new elaborate tomb in alexandria and this empty sarcophagus now empty sarcophagus of Nectanebo, was then disposed of in some other part of alexandria and that's where it remained until it was moved by the French and then the British, and is now in the British Museum. And that's how these local legends emerged and how it was once the tomb of Alexander. So you can go to the British Museum. You can go and look at this often overlooked big black granite sarcophagus in the Egypt Gallery, and you can think very plausibly. This is initially the argument of our Andrew Chug. I think it's very plausible. I believe it. Dr. Chris Norton also believes it. It's getting more and more traction today, and I think it very much deserves it. That sarcophagus, temporarily, for a time, did house the body of Alexander the Great. So I can't tell you where he had sex, but I can tell you that that was potentially where he lay in state for a period of time.
0: Well, with all things in life, the big topics are life, sex, death. That's the place to start for me. Tristan, yeah. wow, what a story and how brilliantly told. We yeah. had such an entertaining episode. That really was. I could see it all unfold in front I, of my I eyes. just I just feel we could hit you with anything over the last million years. And I and you'd have the answer. answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever I've been in the company of such a scholarly person in my life. Uh, just the command of the names out just it is, yeah. you know, it is amazing. You know, and the fact that you're still looking for new history the whole time, you're trying to bring this to the masses. So anybody, small listenership on the historians, do go and give the ancients a go. It really is an incredible podcast. I think we're doing amazing things, Tristan. And I'm sure we'd love to have you back on the show to discuss something else again in the future if you, if, you, if you come
1: back on. Always happy to. It was a pleasure to meet you both. And if you're both over in the UK and London anytime soon, a pint's on me. So I look forward to it. We'll Fantastic. hold you
0: to that. Tristan, Fantastic. thank you so much for you your so time much. this evening. Take care. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Take care. Wow. What yeah. a, a look. There you go, listeners. Free history on the historians. So on a we, grand scale. On a grand scale. With, with people like Tristan Hughes, you just don't get somebody like that in your classrooms. Or if you do, you're very lucky. The enthusiasm, yeah. the, the joy, the pure, bringing ancient history to life. I could see that unfolding from America. We came to talk about three years. I think we talked about a bit more than that. But even all the stuff that happened in that three years, and again, we only touched on what's in the book. So i said go do buy that the perdicus years if you want to get dive in, into all that stuff. But a uh, great guy, part of the History Hit team. Yeah, re- really good stuff. And uh, oh, I hope we can meet him again sometime in the future. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm the historians <laughs> are going all the way back. History, talking about the ancient sex life of the, yeah. of the Greeks. I mean, you don't just get more. Better than that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I hope not you noticed. enjoyed it, listeners. <laughs> yeah, take it easy. Tune in, hope in next to time. See you again. Bye. Bye bye.